And then we got the most brilliant of idea of all. Readers and writers would come and we would charge them and that would pay for it. So we had the solution at last. That was Betty Keller, one of the women we here at the Sunshine Coast Festival of the Written Arts know as the Founding Mothers. And I'm Sean Eckford, festival board member and producer of our daily festival podcasts. Normally about this time of year, we release our festival preview episode. But with the festival celebrating 40 years of bringing Canadian writers and readers together, we're doing something a little different, starting with the story of the festival's birth and near death. To tell the story of the birth, let's go back to the 2012 festival, when we brought together four of the founding mothers, Betty, who you've already heard, Gwen Southern, Rosella Leslie, and Maureen Foss, on the occasion of our 30th anniversary. All four are authors in their own right, and as Betty told the Pavilion audience, in the 80s they were looking for a way to teach others how to become published authors with the help and advice of those who'd already walked that path. There was a problem with uh, teaching for continuing ed because they insisted that classes had to be 15 or more and you can't teach creative writing to 15 or more people at a time. So I started teaching privately and within a very short time I had four classes with five, six or seven people in each of them. And then it began to bother me that the only published writer that they were ever hearing from was me and it began to occur to me that it would be a good idea for them to listen to other published writers, established writers, and get an insight into this whole business of getting published. So I put an ad in the paper and said, asked all writers, whether published or unpublished, to meet in the Arts Center on that April the 13th. And Gwen and I were stunned because about 35 people showed up. But those, those were the beginnings of the people who became the, the core of the first volunteers for the festival. That evening, we began the uh, program by establishing a networking organization called the Sun Coast Writers Forge. And then we came to this whole business of inviting writers to come and talk. And we figured, okay, one writer a month, uh, this would work out very nicely. Uh, then we thought, oh, we'd have to pay them a fee and their fairy fare and their accommodation. How were we going to pay for that? Then somebody said, well, instead of uh, one each month, let's just do it for one weekend in the summer. We'll invite a number of them then. But underneath all that, there was still this determination to make sure that our novice writers met the established writers. And they had to be Canadian writers. There's no good bringing in international ones, etc. We wanted poets and playwrights and journalists and um, novelists and you name it. Anybody who wrote, we were interested in. One big problem was there was no format to follow. I had been uh, organizing high school drama festivals for the whole of 
British Columbia up to that point. And I figured, okay, it can't be harder than shepherding 500 Randy high school actors around. <laughs> Betty said mistakes were made in those first couple of years, but by its third year in 1985, the festival was starting to stake its claim to being one of the country's premier literary events. Writer's Festival comes of age. Peter Trower, Coast News, August 26, 1985. My brain is still a bit jangled from the events that took place in Seashelt on the weekend of August 16th. Let us say that the Writers' Festival, in its third year, definitely came of age. But for festival number three in 1985, even the largest tent we could rent wasn't big enough for everyone who wanted to attend Peter Zosky's first appearance here. So we rented the elementary school gym in behind us here. It was after the third festival that John Burnside, writing in the Coast News, said, What we have here, folks, is an honest-to-God national attraction. The name of Seashell is now synonymous in literary Canada with a quality literary event. While the festival was now an important fixture in the community, we were still really dedicated to teaching writers how to write better. And our first Writers in Residence was held in August 1986. But it wasn't all glamour and whiskeys with Peter Zosky and Mordecai Richler. The founding mothers and their growing core of volunteers put in a lot of hard work behind the scenes. Evenings were spent stuffing envelopes for mail-outs, volunteers covering the cushions, Mary McKinnon and Marion St. Dennis making striped canopies for the food booths, and taking tickets, helping Marla Chatham make sandwiches. We used to, uh, in order to make muffins for sale mid-morning and mid-afternoon, uh, we handed the job out as well to volunteers. We measured the ingredients and sent them and the muffin tins home and uh, so they could bring in freshly baked muffins in the morning. We had nearly 200 volunteers on the books by our 10th year. 200. A weekend with Verity Purdy teaching everyone plant, how to plant hanging baskets and make flower arrangements with flowers and plants found in the wild, or anything we could beg, borrow, or steal. Verity once stumbled on a clearing in the forest where someone was cultivating marijuana. <laughs> she beat a hasty retreat. But I think we probably could have used them in the arrangements. <laughs> in fact, Maureen Foss remembered being so busy helping things run smoothly she hardly saw any of the festival. I intended to listen to some of the speakers, which is why you volunteer, right? Uh, never managing to get out of the kitchen for long enough to do so. In 12 years that I was on the board, I heard 10 minutes of Stuart <laughs> McLean. Eventually, the festival found a permanent home at Rockwood, a heritage building and surrounding gardens in downtown Seashelt, which is now a municipal park. But the board knew that Rockwood, as it was, wasn't ready to host a big-time literary festival. And so they set about a new project, constructing the iconic Rockwood Pavilion. But it was after the sixth festival in 1988 that Dave Foss and Ken Salter announced that we have to have our own building. And we know just what it will look like. A pavilion with just posts and a roof to keep off the rain. And they knew exactly where they could put it on the Rockwood property. They had pasted it all out and figured out where it was going to go, which by this time belonged to the town of Seashell. And that's how the pavilion 
came to be. Dave was in the first year of his retirement from the RCMP, but he took on a, the role of contractor for the pavilion. He drew the plans and the kitchen table. Of course, when the municipal building department got a look at the simple plans Dave and Ken had drawn up, the building became vastly more complex. And for the next year, we didn't see him. His crew was a bunch of mostly retired guys who all knew something about building. He also had a couple of guys on a UIC retraining program, and from time to time, men doing community service for their sins, and even a couple of parolees. The steel brackets to hold the post together up there, I put the bite on my ex-husband for them. <laughs> <laughs> and we got concrete for the footings and hardware of various kinds. They, the local businesses were just wonderful. Everything had to be ready for the festival opening when, we were, when this was just finishing. And I can always remember my husband Vic up the top there laying the last tiles on the floor as the people started to stream in. <laughs> it, it was kind of a, a close call. It was Betty Keller, though, who probably had the biggest adventure when it came to getting the pavilion ready for prime time. So, the chairs we were able to afford were what you would call uncomfortable, to say the least. But they were a start. So after the first year, we began making cushions for them, squares of foam rubber, and then volunteers would cover the, those squares with cotton that had our festival logo on it. And in order to get those foam rubber squares, we had to go into Vancouver for them. So one day I took my little truck, uh, which was a nightmare for everybody because by that time it didn't have much in the line of brakes. And as we drove back over the Lionsgate Bridge, we just got going over the bridge, and of course one of those uh, plastic wrapped packages of foam rubber, which were very light, flew off the back of the truck, hit the windshield of the car coming behind me. I think he must have said dreadful things. And bounced over and landed on the sidewalk. Well, I couldn't stop. You can't stop on the Lionsgate Bridge. So I had to keep driving. We got that lay-by that's just over the other side of the bridge. Gwen guarded the, the rest of them while I hiked back across the bridge. But when I got hold of it, it you think of a wobbly thing that's eight feet high, and if I held it upright and the winds caught me, I was in danger of landing in the drink. And if I held it sideways, every bicyclist who was trying to cross the bridge was nearly sideswiped into the oncoming travel. But eventually it got across, and off we went, <laughs> went for our shopping expedition. Let's pause for a moment. You may have noticed that other than authors, the story of the pavilion construction is really the first mention of the men behind the scenes. That's because in those formative years, it really was the founding mothers and a largely female cast of driven volunteers who brought the skills that elevated the festival from a literary event to an experience. Jane Davidson is in her final year as our artistic and executive director. More about that later. And she says we're not imagining it women have been key to our success. Absolutely, the women have had a huge, huge role in, in this festival. I, I would say 
during my time in the festival world, the majority of leaders of Canadian literary festivals are women. From those volunteer-baked muffins to big sit-down dinners where festival attendees could mingle with the authors, food has been a big part of the festival's history. And as Gwen Southern recalled, it was inviting cookbook authors to the festival that led to our first publishing venture. We would serve up a dinner using their recipes from that, from that uh, writer's book. Some of the people who attended inevitably thought that the author or the chef had made the meal. But in fact, it was a small army of volunteers led by me. Most of these cookbook authors were thoroughly impressed with the meal and one of them refused to allow anyone in the hall to eat until his photographer had taken photos of every dish. <laughs> but our guests were hungry, so we finally kicked him out. It was while cleaning up after this particular one that the idea of a festival cookbook was born. If you don't have a copy, you should try and find one. The festival was thriving. Some of the biggest names in Canadian literature were drawing good audiences, and Rockwood was becoming the jewel in the festival crown. But as we entered the 90s, there was an elephant in the pavilion that could no longer be ignored. Festival of the Written Arts Board vows the show will go on. Jane Said, Coast News, December 19, 1994. It may be a scaled-down version of the Festival of the Written Arts in Seashelt, but the board of directors from the event say the show will go on next summer despite financial troubles. Probably the biggest hurdle facing the board is an accumulated debt of over $100,000, Preliminary figures from 1994 show the event continued to lose money last year, with costs outstripping income by about $31,000. Wendy Hunt was the president at the time and remains an active volunteer. We were about $150,000 in debt. We owed to the community, we owed off the coast, and we owed authors money. It was a pretty uh, desperate situation and there were many who thought that this was uh, this was the end of the festival that we couldn't move on but the board was really resilient the people involved had loved it with a passion and they said no we're going to see what we how we can get out of this wendy says it was treasurer rick cooney whose day job was with the local credit union who took matters in hand we came up with a three-year plan and and it meant doing a lot of things, and one of them was trimming back the festival, which others predicted would be the ruin of the festival because it wouldn't be the way it used to be. But we cut out the things that were um, sort of superfluous to the actual festival, and that cut down expenses. Founding producer Betty Keller also stepped down at that time, and new producer Gail Bull came on board under a unique arrangement. She was our savior of the day. She was good at writing grants. And so the grants continued to come in. The ticket sales were, were um, not enough to cover all the expenses. So she had to take a loan out with the credit union. And this was arranged through Rick to be paid because the grants don't come in until sometime in the spring. And we knew there would be money coming in, but we didn't have any money. She took out a loan and each month she could pay herself so when the grants came in, we paid off the loan. That's a big thing. <laughs> That's a lot of trust there. She had a lot of trust that we could do it too. As well as bringing on a new producer and making some changes to the festival format to save money, the board of the day had to get creative with its fundraising. We raffled off a car. Well, back in those days, it seemed like every 
outfit that wanted to raise money thought they'd raffle off a car or a truck or something. So there was some competition. We raffled off a Miata, little Miata. It was a lot of work because you, you have to be out there selling tickets. And I mean, I can remember standing outside one of the pubs in Gibson's and with the car selling tickets and having, you know, these guys come along, you know, I, I was kind of cute in those days, and, you know, talking to them, and, and eventually they'd buy a ticket, but, you know, no, I wasn't giving them my phone number. We even went down to Granville Island. One of our board members arranged for us to go down to, for me to go down to Granville Island with the car and sell tickets. So we, but, you know, that caught, that took a lot of time. Everybody worked hard on that. You don't get the car for nothing. I mean, you have to pay for the car. You know, I mean, you make maybe $5,000, but it's another five grand towards what your, your, your debt. The festival's climb out of the red was also helped by some big events. Prior to this, we used to have, well, sometimes a small um, group of musicians from the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra would do the closing night. And so we'd have to bring in a, a piano and have it tuned. And the, lots of, of really quality, nice things. People liked it. We then started looking at, you know, getting a small combo or we, because closing night's a big deal. And or some local musicians. Our first person for closing night was Joni Mitchell. <laughs> and that was, you know, that really took some some connections to do. So she got the standard rate. She didn't get any more or than anybody else was being paid. So and we paid her expenses, but you know, she just had to come from up the way. <laughs> so it was that was a real coup for us. I think I think the fact that we could get Joni Mitchell really was a um, really spurred us on. It didn't get us out of debt. So we just felt like, you know, we're the new the new gang in town. We got Joni. <laughs> and and it just it felt it felt good. There were a lot of people didn't think we would ever get her. So that that was just one more thing that just showed that this little toot can make a big noise too. So we felt good about it. And well, it may have looked bleak for a while back then. We're still here and doing quite well, thank you very much. I say after three years, we were out of debt and made a vow we would never, ever get ourselves in debt again. I'm, I'm very proud of, of what, what we've done, and I still consider myself part of the festival. I feel good about it. I feel very good about it. I love the festival. Thanks for listening. I'm Sean Eckford. Sophie Woodruff was the assistant producer for the podcast and helped with interviews, editing, and script writing. She was also our voice from the newspaper archives. This year's festival runs August 11th to 14th. Visit writersfestival.ca to check out the lineup and find out how to order tickets. 